today on City Cash Chicago. One of Mayor Brandon Johnson's big promises is to make headway on reparations by creating a commission. Uh, we've kind of heard this one before, right? Uh, a reparations subcommittee was created under the former mayor and they rarely met. But nearby Evanston managed to pass their own reparations ordinance nearly four years ago. We're talking with the former alder person who led the charge in the north suburb about how the program works and what Chicago can learn. It's Monday, July 31st. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is What Chicago's Talking About. Robin Ruth Simmons is the founder of First Repair and a former Evanston Alder person. Welcome to CityCast Chicago. Thank you. I am happy to be here with you today. We're excited to have you. For our CityCast listeners, let's set the stage and define what we're talking about here. What are reparations, essentially? Well, in this context, I am talking about reparations for the Black communities. Not only the crimes of the transatlantic slave trade, but its vestiges, its legacies, anti-Black policies and laws. So we're looking to repair them in tangible ways. And obviously, when we're talking about something as... uh, I mean, monumental is the transatlantic slave trade. This is something that for centuries has set up the black people's position in this country, has robbed them of humanity, family and and wealth and economic uh, stature in this country. While the wealth of this nation has largely been built on the the back uh, of black folks, when we're looking in practical terms of reparations, what are people largely asking for? Because it comes in in many sort of uh, different shapes. Reparations generally is discussed in the form of some sort of a check, a cash payment. But when you go into black communities, Evanston being uh, the first to pass a funded reparations initiative, the black community want full repair, not just cash, but also access to housing, business, education, uh, health, uh, trauma-informed care, Uh, Some black folks want to repatriate, whether that means, you know, returning to West Africa or being able to have access to it and learn. Um, There are five components to full repair under international law standards. And the first of those is cessation or guarantee of non-repetition, which means we need to start with policy change, policy. Right. How can we make reparations when we still live in a country that largely is governed in in an anti-black way? That is exactly right. And so although we've had some important laws, civil rights and human rights and fair housing laws passed in the 1960s, we still have anti-Black racism baked into our current public policy locally, statewide and federally. And so that's the first component of repair. Compensation and restitution we hear about all the time, some form of a check, a grant, Something that is measurable and tangible is very important, but there's also uh, satisfaction. And that's an area where we're seeing great milestones. That's going to be acknowledgments, apologies, monuments, holidays. For example, Juneteenth passing as a federal holiday is a form of reparations, education, and so on. Um, Satisfaction is an area that we are seeing some milestones. But then there's also rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. 
looking at our health and wellness. We experience trauma every day, just as Black people living in America. Um, and we also have inherited trauma from our ancestors and our elders through transgenerational epigenetics. So we're looking at full repair, and that could come in the form of, in Evanston, started with $25,000 direct benefits to build wealth through housing. It's expanded to cash. Other communities are looking at community benefits for reparations, uh, housing opportunities and education and so on. But the remedies are to be prescribed by the black communities pursuing uh, racial justice and reparations. And obviously this is really uh, a monumental task too huge for any one town or municipality to sort of tackle in any one cycle. But can you tell me, how did you arrive at the program in Evanston and how does it work? So by consensus, we started with housing because housing is a predeterminant for most all things livability wise. Um, it is also the most likely path to building wealth for any family. But second to it being the consensus of the feedback from the black community, our harm report, our case for reparations is rooted in zoning laws and housing policies that were enforced by the city of Evanston. So that supports the community's feedback on housing. And thirdly, and really most importantly, so that we can have a implemented, dispersed, real reparations program and not just ceremonial, we had to have a legal framework. So our remedy is in direct correlation with the harm that allows us to have strength against any legal challenges, which we have received from even outside of our community and um, implement our reparations program. It sounds like throughout your surveys, this is what people wanted. It addressed the critical harm in the community. It was practical, legal to do. How does one become eligible for the program and how is the money paid out to them? There was a law in Evanston in force between 1919 and 1969 that was anti-Black. It was a zoning law that really uh, stripped away wealth and opportunities from Black families um, through downzoning and all kinds of other practices that were anti-Black in the historically Black part of town. Um, so everyone Black in Evanston between 1919 and 1969 was harmed by the city of Evanston and therefore their direct descendants were harmed. So that's how you qualify. You lived in Evanston and were Black between those 50 years or you're a direct descendant. Like in my case, I'm a direct descendant. The benefit is dispersed um, in a few ways. You can use it for a down payment for a purchase of a home. You can use it to pay down a mortgage balance, principal balance, or however you choose to uh, direct your funds. You can use it to make improvements and repairs of any type to a home that you own already. And that is the option that has been selected most in our city. And you can pass it down. And so we do have uh, some residents that have received the benefit and then pass their uh, benefit to a child. Um, instead of using it themselves. And most recently, we included the option to take a direct cash benefit. Is the direct cash benefit the exact same amount and can it only be used towards housing in the same ways? It is the exact same amount and it is um, an understanding that it, it, is, it is used for wealth building activity, uh, but we don't we don't check that. So we um, hope that residents are using it in a 
in a way that builds well. Um, but there is no mandate. So it sounds like the restrictions were a little tighter when this was the the initial uh, version of this came out back in 2019, that it had to be used and organized through the city for housing purposes. But now it sounds like it, it's being dispersed in a way where people can use it in the ways that would most benefit them, but with the hope that it is helping them to sort of secure wealth. Um, you know, what makes this different than a housing grant? How What makes this reparations? Well, what makes it reparations, it is a direct response with an acknowledgement of harm and an apology and a attempt to repair. It's reparations because it's set aside specifically for the Black community. And in most all cases, the beneficiaries of the reparations have layered this on with the other types of housing programs that you have mm-hmm. mentioned. But it is reparations because it is a uh, tangible repair to a specific harm to a targeted community, the black community. And in that way, it's not equity. It's not a housing program. It is reparations. Mm -hmm. What do you say to critics who say it either doesn't go far enough or it may um, ultimately, you know, limit opportunities to gain larger Uh, access to reparations through statewide or federal initiatives? Well, those that say it doesn't go far enough, like we're on the same team and this is not a settlement. We aren't done. The work is only beginning. In 2019, there were no reparations. There were no budgets. There were no legislation. We have to start somewhere and build on our milestones and move forward with momentum. And we're doing that. We're seeing it. Evanston was the only one in 2019. There's about 112 cities, states, and uh, localities that have been inspired and moved forward. So we're looking for state, federal, institutional reparations as well. And those that say that uh, local reparations stands in the way or jeopardizes a federal bill, um, completely disagree with that. If you look at any of our um, transformative federal policy, it started hyper-locally, usually, with a grassroots effort, some momentum happening in the state level, municipal law, and so on. You look at school desegregation and fair housing and marriage equality and ban the box, even cannabis now being discussed in Congress, started as a state law. In 2019, H.R. 40, the federal bill for reparations that has languished in Congress, um, had 16 co-sponsors. Our last Congress ended with 119 co-sponsors and yes votes in the House, a Senate companion bill, hundreds of ally-led institutions signing a letter um, making a demand for President Biden to sign an executive order for reparations. And so just the opposite. We have seen more support and progress towards reparations since the local reparations movement launched in 2019, getting us towards that repair. We're seeing foundations now provide resources to professionalize the movement and get local initiatives um, going and even advocate for a federal bill. Speaking of how this $10 million program is being paid for, it'll largely come from cannabis and real estate transfer tax revenues, which means it's ongoing, not one time. But when we when we look into the numbers, the initial reparations ordinance was passed in 2019. Since then, there have been hundreds of applicants, but 
I believe just over like 16 payouts. Is that a a win in your eyes? Is that a success? And is there any way to speed this up? Yeah, it's a win because we've had progress where we didn't have a dollar committed in 2019. We have 20 million now. So it's not 10, it's 20. While we look for additional revenue sources. So initially it was cannabis sales tax. Additionally, now, because of our commitment to this work, it's also real estate transfer taxes. There were 16 uh, dispersed for a very long time. That number is jumping up over time because we have now learned how to um, make some staff adjustments. We have identified full-time staff and how we can disperse this where before we, you know, there was no blueprint. And so we had challenges with disbursement and um, taxation, wanted to be sure that we weren't. Is, is the money taxed or is it no strings attached? Yeah, there's no strings attached, but those are things that we had to um, get legal memos from. So we didn't want to jump out and begin dispersing. And then we have residents losing important life-saving benefits like housing and housing vouchers and SNAP benefits and Medicaid and so on. And so we had to learn along the way. And so to the critics, I say a better use of your time is, you know, helping the movement uh, with all the roadblocks ahead of us, helping with the judicial barriers um, in Congress, helping um, with legal memos and understanding taxation, helping to get more funds to deliver more repair, finding more allies, inviting more scholarship and so on. That is a better use of time um, than, than than criticizing, in my opinion. After spearheading this work, during your first time as an older person, you chose to move out of office and do reparations work full time. Why? Well, there is a need and a demand, and we have great momentum right now, more so than we've ever seen in the history of the reparations movement. I came to the work only in 2019. My work evolved to reparations after 20 years of public service and fighting for improving the Black experience. I didn't know that I was fighting for reparations until February of 2019. And when we passed in in Evanston, There was so much hope nationwide. There was so much opportunity in my own city to build on, really apply pressure, like full throttle on our efforts that we are seeing right now. And it was my decision that I could best serve my people and the movement uh, by singularly focusing on reparations and not potholes and trash pickup day and all the other important things that a council person is responsible for. Do you feel like your side of the fence is moving smoother, having stepped out of a direct political office and, and into this work? And and is, was it something about that process that you felt was just too cumbersome or, uh, you know, maybe didn't get to, to the root of this issue often enough? Well, no, I mean, the... Our process was actually um, no one was paying attention to us in Evanston when when I led the passing with so many other of my um, collaborators here in town. It wasn't newsworthy until it passed and folks didn't believe it would happen. Folks in town didn't even apply because they didn't think that there would ever be a benefit dispersed. And they do have regrets now. We hear from them all I've the time. I've seen some of the documentaries. I've, I've seen some of the news coverage of people who said, ain't no way in hell right. this is going to happen. <laughs> right. And so um, I'll say that there is a political process. There is a political timeline. Now that it's so public, there's 
more people to block and fight and hate and, you know, corrupt. Uh, so we had the privilege of working very quietly and peacefully in Evanston. And now, uh, you know, that has changed. You have folks that just either don't believe and some folks that want reparations and maybe are just scared. I, I can't really get in the minds of folks why they would be in opposition, especially our own folks. Is your organization First Repair doing any work with the city of Chicago on reparations? So we're not working directly with the city of Chicago, but um, I personally have been involved. Um, at the time, Cam Howard, while he was a national co-chair of Encobra, uh, led a incredible uh, public education campaign. And they were successful in getting a reparations committee established under the leadership of Alderman Rod Sawyer uh, with Alderman Stephanie Coleman and Alderman Vasquez as co-chairs of that committee. And since then, it's been dormant. There's been no activity. I think they had one additional meeting, but so much more needs to happen. We're talking about Chicago. The wealth gap, the housing gap, the education gap, uh, all of the harms and trauma that's happening in Chicago that's intentional, systemic, that it's current, it's present, it's in the current policy. So Chicago, come on. I mean, to your point, the, the reparations subcommittee created under former Mayor Lori Lightfoot has only met twice. Now we have Mayor Brandon Johnson's administration, which is pushing for a new dedicated reparations committee. What do you think is the biggest thing a city like Chicago should keep in mind and, and focused on? I mean, just urgency, establishing the committee so the work can happen. I think what happens in cities, and certainly this is the case with the federal bill, is there's all this debate around eligibility and forms of reparations and calculating the harm and this and that. And we haven't even established the committee. So can we get the committee established or commission task force, whatever you're going to call it, and then have your panel of experts, your stakeholders, your scholars, your elected leaders uh, work with the community to do the work. And so my advice to Chicago would be establish this uh, new commit committee, lead in the urgency of now, establish the commission and the work can begin. Robin Ruth Simmons is the founder of First Repair. Robin, thank you for something by CityCast. Of course. Thank you. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. Starting tomorrow, the city will begin housing migrants and asylum seekers at Broadway Armory Park in Edgewater. That means some community programs will be moved to other locations, prompting pushback from a few neighbors. The Major League trade deadline is set for tomorrow night, and Sox and Cubs fans are wondering what exactly our team's going to look like come midweek. In the meantime, in between time, the Cubs are at home today against the Reds, while the Sox are on the road tomorrow against the Rangers. The Cook County Forest Preserve will begin accepting submissions for its annual photo contest tomorrow until August 15th. You can submit up to five of your best photos, but no drone shots. Entry is free and more info is in the show notes. I might have to get in on this. And some good news. We're hiring a full-time audio producer to join our great Chicago team to help make this podcast. If you're interested or you got some friends you think would be perfect, head over to the show notes to grab the listing or head to citycast.fm slash jobs. Hey, we would love to have you join our team, so please apply. I'll be back bright and early tomorrow. In the meantime, in between time, subscribe to our daily newsletter, Hey Chicago, at chicago.citycast.fm. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
Peace. Thank you so much. I was in the middle of the conversation. I was just like, are you, do you do speaking tours? <laughs> I do actually. I, I figured as much. I was like, I see it. I'm like, you are on stage right now. <laughs> and I didn't even know it. It just happened. I just, I just was getting so many requests. I, w- I said, wait a second. I think I'm on tour. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.